Mrs. Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Mura, her autobiography, written by Mura Limpany with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Chapter 4 Uncle Tobbs and the Isai Competition Who on earth should I go to for tuition, I wondered. My next London appearance was to be with the British Women's Symphony Orchestra at the Queen's Hall. They had never heard of me, and I had had to pass an audition. They also expected me to sell fifty pounds worth of tickets. I was to play two works completely unknown to me, the Piano Concerto by Delius, an early work of his, and the Symphony on a Mountain Song by Vincent Dandy, a scholarly French composer, protégé and lifelong friend of César Franck, the Belgian composer. Selling tickets for the concert was quite easy. They had engaged a completely unknown girl, so I did my best. My mother helped and friends did the rest. The fifty pounds was soon made up. The problem was tuition. The situation became urgent. The British Women's Orchestra concert at the Queen's Hall was almost upon me, and my playing of the two important works by Delius and Dundee would attract critical attention. Critics are so important to an artist. They perform a great service to music and the arts. Without them, who would know about us, the performers? When they give a bad review, it is really because they care passionately about the music. Often they are bored by the umpteenth performance of Handel's Messiah given by the local amateur choral society and a few semi-professional aspiring soloists, but these fledgling singers may and sometimes do go on to great things, and it is the provincial critic who has spotted their potential and singled them out for notice. The music critic, Clinton Gray Fisk, who was a personal friend of mine, knew of my distress and dilemma, and I sought his advice. Here was a case where a critic had heard and seen me play, recognized my ability, and set me on the right road. Clinton Gray Fisk's counsel was something for which I shall always be grateful. He was adamant, I must go to Tobias Matai. There was much talk of the Matai method, and I did not like what I heard of it. Matai had written nearly twenty books purporting to explain his method. My old teacher, Ambrose Coviello, tried to explain Matai's explanations in his book, What Matai Meant. Matai had been a Royal Academy of Music student, a popular pianist and composer, before becoming a professor at the Academy. Legend has it that a dispute had occurred, and he had publicly walked out crossed the Marlbone Road, and, followed by loyal students, founded his own school in Wimpole Street. In his book, The Act of Touch, he attempted a full-scale scientific analysis of the physical aspects of piano playing, categorizing the various vertical movements into touch species and laying great stress on muscular relaxation and forearm rotation. 
He was now over eighty, and living in semi-retirement at his beautiful house, High Marley, with panoramic views of the Downs in Hazelmere. People who went to him for tuition came away exaggerating everything he had told them to do, and so I had come to believe that the Matai method meant throwing oneself about at the piano, one's arms and hands flying all over the place. He had taught many superb pianists, Myra Hess, whom he called his prophetess, twenty-five years older than myself, a deeply serious, profoundly religious pianist, and Irene Scharr, Eileen Joyce, and Harriet Cohen had also gone to Matai for tuition. So had Clifford Curzon. I obtained his books and tried to read them, but could not understand them at all. One published in 1908 featured line drawings of hands and fingers and arms doing extraordinary things, and pictures of a little boy wearing a sailor suit seated at the piano. This last, later a professor at the Royal Academy of Music, declared that Matai's books had nearly put him off music for life. I did not want to go to Matai. I felt sure he would want to change my way of playing, and I had visions of starting from scratch again. However, I was becoming so nervous about the forthcoming concert, I had to do something. I fell in love with him the moment I saw him. He was so gentle, a darling little white-haired old man with a mustache, his eyes shining behind wire-rimmed spectacles, dressed exquisitely in a frogged black velvet jacket, velvet skull cap and patent leather slippers. He smiled sweetly at me and patiently. His first lesson was a revelation. Seated beside me at the piano, he explained more to me in one sentence than I had managed to discover from all his books. Uncle Tobbs, as we called him, insisted that all music must be memorized. Musical memory is a complex phenomenon. Copy on the piano, distrust of memory, makes it impossible for the artist to concentrate his whole mind on the search for the spirit of the music. Clara Schumann, whose own memory was unsure, used to sit on the sheet music as a safeguard when she played. Of the three main forms of memory used in playing, musical, visual, and muscular, I had muscular and musical memory, but not visual memory. My fingers often seemed to remember of their own accord what notes to play, and of course I sang the music in my head, as I have always done. Keep your mind on the meticulously adequate sounding of the note or set of notes due that moment, taught Uncle Tobbs, and the next will then automatically and surely loom up in your mind. If self-doubt sets in and a pianist commits the fatal blunder of trying to recall the next note, the sequential action is disconnected and breakdown inevitable. I must not think of anything else but the phrase I am playing. If I think of the next note, I break the chain of the phrase. If I think, isn't this beautiful, while I am playing, I have lost the chain. The concert with the British Women's Symphony Orchestra was a great success for me. I continued to study with Uncle Tobbs for the next ten years. Uncle Tobbs showed me how to express my feelings, how to project what I felt. He taught me how to phrase, how to breathe, 
how to make hairpins, that is, make a longer note sound louder than the next short note, so that two notes never sound alike. He taught me how to put my finger onto the key before pressing it down, so that the sound would be beautiful. He taught me to relax. The only thing he did not teach me was technique, because, he said, I did not need to be taught technique. I had it. He taught me to practice away from the piano, silent practice, he called it, without playing a note, but with every note inflection and the actual playing processes vividly imagined. He liked to quote Robert Louis Stevenson, Mark the note that rises, mark the notes that fall, mark the time when broken, and the swing of it all. So when night is come and you are gone to bed, all the songs you love to sing will echo in your head. I had always marked my music, and so I got into the habit of taking my music to bed with me and studying it silently as Uncle Tobbs taught me. Overnight I digested it, and the next day I really knew it. One day I couldn't play thirds quickly enough. You're putting too much pressure on them, he said. Try playing more lightly, as if you are a butterfly touching the keys, nearly staccato. He was quite right. They went much better. Another day I was very downcast. I could not play octaves. You are thinking of them as octaves, he told me. Play them very near the key, nearly legato, and don't think of them as octaves. Just imagine you are playing an ordinary tune. The octaves went much better and without mistakes. His psychological approach was masterly and so subtle. He made me feel I could do anything. I even complained to him that he never seemed to criticize me. Every time I tell you something, it is actually a criticism, was his benevolent reply. Many of the great pianists of the day played handfuls of wrong notes. It was said of Delbert, who was a giant, that he could give a second recital with the wrong notes he had played at the first. Matai never minded the wrong notes. Make music even if you play a few wrong notes, was one of his favorite sayings. At this time, Uncle Tobbs chose me to play at the Queen's Hall in a concert of his best pupils. I played the second Brahms book of variations on a theme of Paganini, and bewailed to Uncle Tobbs the fact that I had played so many wrong notes. But you don't know how many things you did right, he told me. He preferred to hear a few wrong notes if the performance had a bit of life. Then I was to play the fourth piano concerto by Beethoven. The opening phrase of this work terrifies every performer. One starts with a piano dolce chord, and the mood and nuances are sublime. Having tried for half an hour to get the mood I wanted into that phrase, I gave up. Uncle Tobbs did not believe in eight hours of practice a day, and would say, If you can't do it in four hours, you will never do it. He meant the brain could stand only four hours practice per day. After all, one practiced not only to get the notes right, but to put the correct expression into the work. What happens at a performance is that nerves start pouring adrenaline into the body, 
and all emotions become more deeply felt. There is no doubt that practice makes perfect, but it depends on what kind of practice. Uncle Tob said it was no good whatsoever practicing when you were tired. Since one's brain imbibes everything put into it, there is no point in putting slipshod bad playing into it. It was far better to get up early and fresh the next morning and go straight to work. One day I finished playing a piece for him with one arm way up in the air. Uncle Tobbs gently took my hand and replaced it on the piano. Why don't you stay on the keys, he said with his charming smile. Lovely keys, stay on them. Then on another occasion I was rolling round at the piano, trying to bring out as much emotion as I could, when he put his arm round my shoulders. I gazed at him in surprise. The emotion has to come out, he said gently, through your hands, not through throwing your body around. Every year a prestigious young musician's competition took place in Brussels in memory of the great Belgian violinist and composer Eugène Issay. One year it was for pianists, the next for violinists. June 1938 was the date of the next piano competition, and Uncle Tob suggested to me that I enter it. This competition was open to all pianists throughout the world under the age of 30. There would be twelve prizes. The first of three sections would select the semi-finalists, the second select the twelve finalists, and the third stage find the prize winner. My birth certificate had to be posted to the competition administrator to convince them I was really under thirty. So I entered the competition under the name on my birth certificate and my passport, Mary Gertrude Johnston, rather than the name everybody knew, Maura Limpany. When Uncle Tobbs told me that pianists from the whole world would compete, and that the Russian Igor Oystrak had won the previous year's violin contest, I was convinced I would not stand a chance. On the contrary, Uncle Tobbs said gently and quietly, I think you will have a very good chance. In my bank account at Wimbledon, I had only five pounds, and this I drew out for my expenses. Happily, my dear old friends at 44 Rue Aubert welcomed me back as their guest. There was our bond of affection, and I could practice as much as I liked on their piano, the same piano I had used when I was six years old. In this regard, pianists have a constant problem. Violinists, wind players, brass instrumentalists carry their instruments everywhere they go, and so can practice anywhere. Pianists are dependent on finding a piano and hoping it will be properly tuned. That year at Brussels there were 78 pianists from 24 different countries, all borrowing pianos and practicing the exacting program we had been given day after day. One of the youngest was Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli from Italy, who was only 17. The competition was terrifyingly public. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth of Belgium was its patron, since she was a talented violinist herself who had founded the competition. Issei had been her tutor. He had called her, 
ma fidèle et dévouée élève. A few years earlier, Belgian postage stamps had been issued, on one of which Queen Elizabeth was portrayed with her violin, while another featured Isai with his famous Guarneri. The Queen was present at all the early stages of the competition. From the 78 entrants, 28 were chosen for the semi-finals, and I was one of them. Then the 28 were reduced to 12, six girls and six men, and I was still in with a chance. Now came a very strenuous interlude. We twelve young pianists were each allotted a room with a piano in the magnificent royal palace of Lycan for one whole week leading up to the finals. During this time we had to learn a specially composed piano concerto, itself a great secret, for before our arrival in Belgium a competition had taken place among Belgian composers for the honor of creating a work for the occasion. Jean Absil's concerto had won this competition. Added to the task of learning this concerto by heart, we also had to prepare a second piano concerto of our own choice and a biggish solo work. So for one week, the Lycan Palace in the center of Brussels was a scene of tension and rang with piano music played all day on twelve separate pianos. King Leopold and his mother, Queen Elizabeth, both recently tragically widowed, were deeply interested in our work. They called on us to see we were comfortable and had all we needed. The Queen came every evening to our rooms, her camera in hand, to photograph us practicing. Lots were drawn as to who would play when in the finals. I was to play on the third day of the three-day event, so to ensure I should not have an unfair advantage over the others, I was not allowed to see the music for the mystery concerto until two days after the other contestants. I was rather worried how I should learn it, although I usually memorized music quite easily. We were all young and ambitious, I suppose, but we were good-natured, too, and when we saw each other at meals every day, we laughed and joked, like all young people do. In the evenings, we took turns playing the piano yet again, not classical music for the concert hall, but dance music. The palace walls rang with our merriment. I loved to dance, and as we were six men and six girls, I was never without a partner. One of the contestants was Jacob Flier, a shy young Russian who danced with me a lot. I liked him very much, but he was so inarticulate, putting all he could not say into his piano playing. Another was Emile Gilels, who called me Morachka, which means Little Mura, a term of endearment, for I was now twenty-one. Before I received the Absil concerto, I asked one of the others how he was going to tackle it. Four bars at a time, then eight, then twelve, he said. So when at last the music was before me, I tried to do that, always willing to believe others knew better than I did. I was mistaken. I could not make any headway, and was wasting valuable time. The others had already had the music for two whole days. So I began to do what I had always done, played the piece through and through until it began to make sense to me. I practiced the technical difficulties 
and started phrasing the piece as Matai had taught me. I also took the music to bed at night, following another sage Matai counsel. Then you will know exactly what you want to do when you come to it on the piano. Relaxed, sitting up in bed in my room at the Lake and Palace, I read the score over and over again till it was ingrained in my brain. I could hear it in my head, the way I wished it to sound, then slept on it. By the second day, I knew the concerto by heart. I was practicing five hours a day, one more hour than Uncle Tobbs advised, but this was a very special time, and I did not practice as long as Michelangelo. He practiced a dangerous eight hours or more a day, an excessive amount. The day before he was to play in the finals, he came to us in great distress. His hands spread out before him. They were rigid, and he could not move one finger. There was great consternation at the palace, and a doctor had to be summoned to treat him. Michelangelo's hands were disastrously muscle-bound from too much work. He was advised to rest completely for twenty-four hours, and another pianist agreed to take his place so he could have an extra day to rest his hands before playing in the finals. Emil Gilels, another of the Russian finalists, played the orchestral part for me so that I could be sure I knew the whole concerto by heart, and I did. One day when we had been closeted indoors at our pianos all morning, while the June sunshine lit up the park outside, Gilels and I took half an hour off after luncheon to walk round the spectacular crystal house that enclosed the royal collection of tropical plants. The air was delightfully refreshing, and as we rounded a corner on the path coming towards us was King Leopold, also out for stroll. I thought last night I heard strains that were not very classical, he teased. It was true. We had been dancing foxtrots and waltzes and tangos till quite late to Emil Gilel's scintillating piano playing. One of the two Russians was expected to win the competition. The rooms we occupied were not soundproof, and we could hear Gilel's, who had a formidable technique, playing the Tchaikovsky piano concerto as only a Russian virtuoso could. Jakob Flier was playing the Rachmaninoff third piano concerto with the greatest sensitivity and passion. My chosen concerto was the Liszt in E-flat, and my solo work was Mendelssohn's Variation Sérieuse, chosen perhaps because Mendelssohn had been lucky for me, and I had played him as a child in Belgium and at my debut in Harrogate. Several of the pianists declared it was a poor choice. Nothing in it to show me off, they explained. No fireworks, no pyrotechnics. However, I could do nothing about that now. Of the adjudicators, the most important to me was Arthur Rubinstein. He had known Isai well. They had had a kind of father-son relationship and had often played together, especially in London during the First World War. Rubinstein had known and admired Teresa Carino, whose hands were strangely almost the same shape as his own. Rubinstein had rejected also the thin solitary tone of the violin dependent on an accompanist, as I had, for the divine instrument, the piano, with its polyphony and its harmony. 
I idolized Rubinstein. His playing was luminous, unearthly, yet fiery. He was so poised, so aristocratic, to me a divine being. These competitions were not designed to find the best technicians, but to select the most musical, the best all-round pianist. The test of committing to memory the Absil Concerto was a big hurdle. Memory is a series of links, Uncle Tobbs used to say, of chains. If you have studied that work well, then you know that once you start, every phrase is a link that will lead on to the very end. Of the twelve, only two played from memory. Sad to say, one of the final contestants, who had elected to play from memory, suffered a memory lapse during the Absil Concerto. My mother and brother, Tony, came to Brussels for the finals. They were very proud of me and excited at my success. When it came to my turn, first I played the Absil right through from memory without a fault. This was completely unexpected from a young Englishwoman, someone who had learned the piece by heart and played it within a week. After that I played the Mendelssohn, and perhaps because it did not show me off but displayed my musical and interpretative qualities, it counted for me, and it was an excellent contrast with the brilliance of Liszt, in which I had every chance to show my technique. At last we had each played, and now we stood in a row on the stage to await the jury's verdict. We all expected the first prize to go to one of the two Russians, and it went to Emile Gillel's. So we naturally assumed the second prize would go to his young compatriot, Jacob Flier. Then the announcement came. Mary Johnston. I opened my mouth, rooted to the spot, speechless. I wondered for a moment who Mary Johnston was, for I never thought of myself by that name. I glanced at Jacob Flier, who was drawn, shaking, and white as a sheet, and wished I could relinquish the prize and give it to him. The prize, after all, was not of such vital importance to me, but to him in Russia it meant everything. The third prize was his. The English pianist Lance Dosser came forth. The prize of a cheque for £350 I received from the hands of Queen Elizabeth, who graciously invited me to luncheon with her the next day. I could not help remembering that I had been chosen to play for her once before, at the convent at Tongres, during the festivities for the 700th anniversary of the Black Virgin. Denied that honour then, at the age of nine, here I was, twelve years later, having luncheon à deux with Her Majesty at the Lake and Palace. I was forewarned that the Queen, who had been Princess Elizabeth of Bavaria, was a great stickler for protocol, which alarmed me not a little. She was now sixty-two. Then I heard that with musicians she was not so rigidly formal, for she felt that she was one of them, and they were all her friends or colleagues. The piano competition provided much good copy for the press, and when the news that an unknown English girl called Mary Johnston had won the second prize, the newspapers really made a big story out of it. Who was Mary Johnston? The music journalists had never heard of her and could find out nothing. 
when I arrived at the Queen's private apartments in the palace, Queen Elizabeth, tall and slender, welcomed me with champagne and was as simple and charming as could be. I told her none of my friends would know I had won second prize, since everyone knew me as Moore Limpany. The Queen immediately gave orders that the journalists should be informed, and so the press had an even bigger story, for, by the name Moore Limpany, people in London musical circles knew me or about me. We sat down to a most memorable meal. I even remember the menu. We began with poached eggs in a cheese sauce, followed by roast chicken, accompanied by potato mousseline. Never have I tasted a puree so delicious. It must have contained masses of butter and cream. The champagne, my success, the relaxation of tension must have gone to my head. And to be fair to myself, nobody had instructed me in the correct protocol. I had no idea that I should watch the queen, and when she stopped eating, that I should also stop. All I knew was that I was hungry, and the food was delicious. It's so good, I heard myself saying enthusiastically to Her Majesty. May I have some more? You do love your stomach, don't you? remarked the queen, rising from her chair, going to the sideboard and serving me herself. Then I told her about the episode at the convent. She remembered that she had expected a little English girl to play for her and was astonished to learn that I was the one. The result of the competition had given my career a great boost. The British Council immediately wrote to me, offering me a series of concerts, but on condition that I played as Maura Johnston. I flatly refused. I was known as Maura Limpany, and I had no wish to start another career under a different name. Arthur Rubinstein recommended me to his agent in Paris, so I received offers of engagements in Belgium, France, Italy, Holland and Scandinavia, Spain and Portugal. Rubinstein opened all the doors for me. The most important was the entree to the magnificent salon presided over by the Princess Edmond de Polignac at her mansion, an hôtel particulier in the Avenue Henri Martin. She had been Vinaretta singer, the sewing machine heiress, with such an early passion for music that for her fifteenth birthday she had begged for a string quartet. Her Sunday evening soirees were formal affairs attended by every one of note in the worlds of music and theatre, ballet, opera, and art. She was tall, haughty, formidable but I loved her. She was serious about music and not a dilettante. With her was the equally grave, legendary Nadia Boulanger, the teacher to whom all the American composers went. The mother of us all, they called her. The third of this legendary triumvirate was Comtesse Marie Blanche de Polignac, the daughter of the couturier Jean Lanvin, lovely, fresh, also deeply serious about music, with a voice like an angelic lark. Hello, said a frail young pianist. I'm Tinu Lepati. Everyone was charming to me. Present at the competition in 1938 had been the Italian composer Prince Catani and his wife Princess Catani. 
When, later on, I was asked to play in Rome, I went to a cheap hotel and needed somewhere to practice. Prince Catani di Bassiano was a member of the concert committee and offered me the use of his concert grand Steinway at the Palazzo Catani. The Catanis were most charming and kind to me, and I had a very happy time in Rome. I was on the crest of a wave following the Issei competition and utterly oblivious to the terrible events which were brewing in Europe. I was traveling all the time, gaining fleeting impressions of many different people and places. Everyone was helpful and hospitable. Places were briefly visited. Usually I saw only the railway station, the hotel, the concert hall, then the hotel, the railway station. There was no leisure, and so much to think about apart from the music, which always came first. I had to look presentable, my hair, my makeup, my clothes. My hair was still long, and I wore it in a heavy chignon on the nape of my neck. Audiences and critics liked a girl pianist to look pure and virginal, and I wore very simple dresses. I did not wear jewelry. The iridescence of long, dangling earrings in motion, for instance, would be a distraction in serious music-making. Those finalists in the Brussels Issei competition were to have remarkable futures. Gillels had a fabulous career. Jacob Flier returned to the USSR and, after he suffered an accident to one of his fingers, his performing career came to an end and he devoted himself to teaching. The only other English pianist, apart from myself, Lance Dosser, went to Australia, where he established himself as a soloist and teacher at Adelaide University. Yet it is very strange how many greatly gifted artists can start a career in a blaze of glory and then inexplicably fade away. A tragic case was that of a young Englishman, a most promising pianist who had won a prestigious competition, but could not take the strain of a professional career, and so, it is said, he put an end to his own life. As for the seventeen-year-old Michelangeli, who came seventh, he has matured into a dazzling virtuoso.